We're going to look at today um, the fourth section of the wasteland, death by water, and the majority of the next section, what the thunder said. So we'll start with death by water. Um, Madame Sesostris' tarot reading in the first section of the burial of the dead, the first card overturned is our card, the reader's card, the drowned Phoenician sailor connected with Ferdinand of Naples and his father's supposed drowning. To remember the line that Ariel spoke, full fathoms five, thy father lies. Phlebas, most critics agree, is a kind of fertility god, slain in the autumn and resurrected in the spring. A line from Fraser's Golden Bower elucidates this. The king or surrogate king sacrifice for the fertility of the community and the land. It is an embodiment of Young's archetype of sacrifice and transformation, where the old self is sacrificed or destroyed to allow a higher self or order to materialize. Here with the fertility god, we have a consideration of what Madame Sesostris called the hanged man or the hanged god. It's rife in Occidental mythology as described by Tammuz in Sumeria, Osiris in Egypt, Adonis in Greek and Syria, Attis in Syria, and Dionysus in Greece. And of course, as we shall see, the historical incarnation of the fertility God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. As I said before, death by water is our card, the reader's card. The first line elucidates this, Phlebas the Phoenician a fortnight dead. So here we have the drowned Phoenician sailor that was our card in the tarot reading by Madame Sesostris. And he's been dead for 14 days and has forgot the cry of the gulls and the deep sea swell and the prophet and then laughs. In other words, he eschews the things of this world. He's a fertility god now. This world has no meaning to him. And then a current under the sea picked his bones and whispers, reminds us of the second great manifestation in the wasteland with Ferdinand of Naples' relationship to his supposed drowned father, where Ariel says, he suffered a sea change, rich and strange. This is exactly what I think these words mean. A current under sea picked his bones and whispers a sea change, rich and strange. And then, as he rose and fell, he passed the stages of his age and youth, entering the whirlpool. In other words, his whole life passed before his eyes, before entering the whirlpool. And as the fertility god, he must enter the whirlpool. He must die in order to be reborn at the other side. And we, whose card this is, identify with Phlebas, and we must also enter the whirlpool in order to be reborn. And then it ends with, Gentile or Jew, O you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas, who was once as handsome as you. And considering Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you, indicates a hearkening back to Phlebas' human side prior to his becoming a fertility god, where well, we heard the cry of the gulls and the prophet of the lost. 
And there's a later line that talks about eternal lamentations of all the mothers of the fertility gods whose sons were slain to be resurrected. But here we have a mythic appropriation of the death and resurrection of the fertility god as opposed to its historical incarnation again in Jesus of Nazareth. And we should bear and remember uh, Madame Sesostra's admonishment in that tarot reading. She says, fear, fear death by water. But of course, there's nothing to fear here. One enters into the whirlpool and one is reborn. The fifth section of the wasteland, What the Thunder Said, has a note by Eliot himself. He talks about the journey of the disciples to Emmaus. He talks about the approaching of the, to the perilous chapel and of the decay in Eastern Europe after World War I. So what the thunder said begins with um, a echoing of the agony of Christ's betrayal and crucifixion his allusion to Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, his imprisonment and death on the cross. So the actual lines, after the torchlight red on sweaty faces, here the armed posse has come to arrest Jesus and his followers flee. It's also an indication now Jesus was certain to um, shake up the Jewish establishment and he knew full well that would entail the death penalty. So, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, after the agony in stony places, his crucifixion, the shouting of the crowd, shouting for Barabbas instead of Jesus, and the crying of the women followers of Jesus, prison and palace with Pilate, and reverberating, it's meaning something very important is happening. Then you have the line of thunder of spring over distant mountains. So there's the perennial possibility of rain coming, but it's still very distant. And then finally it addresses Jesus' nature in particular. He who was living is now dead. So we have the first part of the fertility God. Jesus has been crucified, so he has died but he is not yet resurrected, so therefore he's incomplete. And we who are living are now dying with a little patience. We are dying with him to a certain degree. This next section is called, kind of uh, ironically, the water dripping song. It's some 30 lines. It's where we experience the devastation, aridity, desiccation, desolation, the actual inferno of the wasteland in great detail. Eliot felt this was the greatest writing he did in the entirety of the wasteland, and Pound concurred, saying that it didn't need any amendment or change. And Eliot felt that this was very close to his automatic writing itself. So I'm going to read the entirety of this section because it's so important. So, here is no water, but only rock. Rock and no water in the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there was water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. 
Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountains mouth of curious teeth that cannot spit, where one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. In other words, one is so encumbrous that one can't even do the simple actions of standing and lying and sitting. It's all problematic. And then there is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. So this kind of is an adjunct to the earlier line of thunder of spring over distant mountains, but now it's a sterile thunder without rain. And then finally, there's not even a solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. So the denizens of the wasteland seem in themselves to be subhuman. And finally, if there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water, and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and the dry, dry grass singing, but the sound of water over rock, where the hermit thrust sings in the pine trees. And here we get the title of this entire song. Uh, Eliot makes a note of how he enjoys the, the celebratory song of the um, hermit thrush. But it's a very devastating image because the sound of the water thrush seems like it's the very sound of rain itself. Drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 drop. And then Eliot delivers one of the most devastating lines in all of the wasteland uh, as a continuation and an end to the previous line, but there is no water. The next section is probably the second most important uh, stanza of the wasteland. Here we have, who is the third that walks always beside you? I think this is a direct reference to the journey to Emmaus by several of Jesus' disciples who are walking along and talking about the young rabbi who's been crucified. And then kind of out of nowhere, another person uh, joins them. They don't really question that, but it, uh, it seems that uh, he converses with them a bit and then disappears as mysteriously as he came. Before he disappears, he makes it clear that he's the resurrected Christ. So now we have not only the crucified Christ, but the revelation of the resurrected Christ. He who is now living is now dead, and now he has been resurrected. So that's the completion of the fertility God's cycle by this line. Then I'll go down to read the rest of it, which is more of an amendment to the first line. When I count, there's only you and I together. When I look ahead up on the right road, there's always another one walking beside you. And then the enigmatic lines, gliding wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman. So I'm thinking what Paul said, that there's neither man nor woman in Jesus. And the fact that the brown mantle hooded, I think is metaphorical. Uh, yes, when Jesus first appeared to his uh, two disciples on the journey to Emmaus, he was hooded in the sense that he did not disclose himself. And then as he leaves, he takes off the hood metaphorically again, and they realize that he's the resurrected Jesus. And then the final line, which confirms the first line, 
but who is that on the other side of you? But we can't leave this section without taking a nod toward the first line, the alternative meaning. I mentioned much earlier the Eliot's form, how one line will be followed by a ironic twist. But this line does both things at once. What is the, who is the third that walks always beside you? We've, told, we've mentioned that it was the disciples on the journey to Emmaus and, Jew, and Jesus joining them. But there's a, a second uh, reference here uh, that Eliot makes to uh, Sharkington's um, expedition to the Antarctica, where it's so cold that one hallucinates a third. Therefore, who is the third who always walks beside you? But I think it's pretty clear, particularly from the note that prefaced what uh, the Thunder said, that that line is a reference directly to the Jesus revealing himself as the resurrected one, a completion of the, of the uh, circle of the fertility God. And then we have the lines from Hermann Hesse, which really symbolize, I think, the terrible consternation and chaos in Eastern Europe after World War One. It's symbolized, but in a very powerful way. Or those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains, stumbling in cracked earth, ringed by the flat horizon only. And then we have the falling towers. And what is mentioned are all these centers of civilization up to this point in history. Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, and London. And all of these cities are decaying or gone, lost to the sands of time, the falling towers of all of them, including even London. And we have to understand that possibly if Elliot was writing today, he may have added New York. Uh, Yates has the line, old civilizations put to the sword. And certainly that could be the case in this regard. And then finally, he uses the line again, unreal, from Baudelaire's Fleur de Mal. It's, if you remember, talks about the city swarming of dreams. But then the next section, we have a clear allusion of the grail enchanters. A woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings. This music, this whisper music, is a kind of demonic music that the Grail Knight must encounter when he's in the Chapel Perilous. And if he's not true to himself, he'd be driven mad by the music that is played by the Grail Enchantress. And then we have this horrific scene, and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall. And upside down in air were towers, reminding us of the falling towers in the various cities, centers of civilization that are gone now, and tolling reminiscent bells, remembering that old civilizations put to the sword, they kept the hours of their destruction. And then we have a, a different type of music um, entirely. We have a, a chthonic kind of music, one that wells up from the very earth itself, and it's celebratory, and voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted wells. 
a real contrast to the demonic music of the Grail Enchantress. And then we come to the most important section of the wasteland, um, where the Perilous Chapel resides. And he says, in this decayed hole of the Perilous Chapel, among the mountains, in the faint moonlight, the grass is singing. So nature is itself singing over the tumbled graves about the chapel. I think the tumbled graves are the graves of all the grail knights who have come prior and failed. There is the empty chapel, only the wind's home. And this is so important because it indicates that the San Grail, the Holy Grail, has been retrieved, has been recovered. And there's only one of Arthurian knights that could do this, who is holy and pure and sacred enough to be able to secure the Sangrael. And that was Galahad. Sometimes he's called the monkish Galahad. But he was the only one of any of the Grail Knights who was capable of touching and retrieving the Sangrael. So I just want to mention here that we have two preconditions to the rain coming in the wasteland. The first is the discovery of the hanged man, of Madame Sesostris, the hanged man, the hanged god, the fertility god, and its historical incarnation in Jesus Christ. The second precondition is the retrieval of the Sangreal, as we've seen by Galahad. And then, dry bones can harm no one. Again, I think this is a reference to all the previous uh, Grail Knights who have tried and failed to retrieve the Sangreal, where Galahad was successful. Only a cock stood on the rooftop. Here's the sound of the cock. Coco Rico, Coco Rico. And here the cock is crowing in Easter, spring, and the resurrection. And we have to remember that very first line of the wasteland, where April is the cruelest month, where now April is the most celebrated and loved month because we have discovered the resurrected fertility God in Jesus of Nazareth. And then the most important section, most important two lines of the wasteland, in a flash of lightning, then a damp gust bringing rain. And rain eventually now has come to the wasteland, then a damp gust bringing rain, reminding us of the two preconditions for that rain and the flowering hopefully that will enable the wasteland to become verdant green. And then the lines, Ganja was sunken. Ganja is the sacred river in India. And the Limpolese waited for rain. So rain has not come to India yet. But while the black clouds gathered far distant over Himavant, Himavant was the most sacred mountain in Hindu mythology, and the black clouds are arriving over Himavant. We can only hope that those black clouds dispel rain on the Ganja, which is sunken. And then finally, then spoke the thunder. So we're going to enter another section of the wasteland, the concluding section, at least of our discussion on what the thunder said. Uh, we'll be discussing what is talked about in the Brihad Aran Yata Upanishad. Then spoke the thunder, da. Da is the fundamental word of all words. In a race of fathers, it probably means just daddy. 
been a race of mothers and oriental philosophy. Da, as I mentioned, is the fundamental word of all words. It's based on a child looking at something in amazement and spontaneously enjoy laughing. So, Da. And Da separates into the three gifts that Patanjali gave to the respective uh, people, the respective groups. Uh, data, uh, giving, he gave to humans who are necessarily greedy. Uh, Damayada, he gave to the demons. Compassion, who are usually cruel. And Damayata, self-control, he gave to the lesser gods, who are naturally unruly. But I like to th think that the three gifts of Patanjali were given to mankind himself. So, Da. So, Da separates, the fundamental word separates into Data, Damyada, and Damyata. So, Da, Data, what have you given? My friend, blood shaking my heart, that awful daring of a moment surrender, which an age of prudence can never retract. By this and this alone, we have existed. And I want to stop, stop there, and I won't discuss the following lines, because this is a, such a perfect entry into the, what I think is being uh, referred to here. I think this is a direct reference to the love between Tristan and Isolde that we saw quite a long time ago. Where Tristan says to Isolde, if I must go back to Cornwall, the King of England, and be cut to pieces for my love of you, I can accept that. And if I must go to hell for my love of you, I accept that. So surely, by this and this only, we have existed. And then, da, them yadam, compassion. I have heard the key turn in the door once, and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison, thinking of the key. So, what is the key to the prison of the ego? Obviously, it's compassion. We think of the key, each in his prison, thinking of the key. Each confirms a prison only at nightfall, but in one's dreams, we can dream thinking of the key and actualize that into unlocking the prison of the ego. And then we have the line, ethereal rumors revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. Ethereal means light and airy, but it also can mean otherworldly. Certainly that connects with each confirms a prison only at nightfall. So these ethereal rumors are obviously about compassion. So they kind of connect the two lines, only at nightfall, and revive for a moment a broken Coriolanus. Coriolanus was a very proud general in the Roman army who felt he was slighted by the Roman people and gathered an army on his own and attacked Rome and was defeated. And then the word, the final gift of the thunder, of what the thunder said, is damyata, or self-control. And Eliot symbolizes this in the image of the boat. The boat responded gaily to the hand expert with soil, sail, and oar. The sea was calm. Your heart would have responded gaily when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands. In other words, self-control needs to be exercised on the heart itself. 
which is likened to a boat uh, being uh, gaily administered by heart and expert with sail and oar. And that'll conclude our looking at what the thunder said. The next lecture, we'll look at the final stanza of the wasteland. Again, one of the most important sections that'll tie everything all up together. Thank you.